0: Welcome to the podcast, Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode 23, entitled, Practice. Too much or not enough? I'm very happy to talk today about my favorite subject, practice. Recently on Instagram, I posted a chart, and the amount of response, both good and bad, was pretty staggering to me. I have to say that for me, opening up that discussion and seeing everyone dialogue about what they believe in regarding practice spun my head around and definitely inspired me to write today's podcast. It seems there's a fair amount of confusion about how much practice is ideal in each age group as well as in each level of a child's musical training. Not only is there that puzzle to solve, but there is clearly a need for quality over quantity, and then, as if this wasn't enough to think about, there's also an issue with different instruments requiring different amounts of hands-on training. It appears for some instruments that any time beyond three hours could be physically very detrimental to the player. For the sake of this podcast, I'm really only trained to speak about string players since this is my profession. But I hope that what I have to say can be applied in some way to other young musicians' work as well. In fact, I'm fairly sure it can be. By the end of yesterday, as I watched the comments unfold on Instagram, I made an observation to myself that the things that people were focusing on as it related to the chart, and particularly the things that upset them a bit, seemed in direct line with past grievances with their own training or results from practice. Surely we have all had periods of intense work which have seemingly led to a different outcome than we would have liked. Many of us have practiced regrets from years past. Maybe we went in a direction that didn't serve us longer than we would have liked, possibly with a teacher's guidance, and this leads us to feelings of resentment and maybe even betrayal. Or perhaps we have a memory of a subpar performance where we know in our heart we arrived on stage without the right amount of proper quality practice. I think most musicians I know who have performance careers have had stages in their development where they have been incredibly focused and efficient. And also, long stretches of creative work more exploratory, which were less focused on the surface, but in there, in the end, they served them for a more long-range goal of individual artistry. When we look at a chart that tells us we aren't on track unless we're putting in hours in the day, what kind of feelings does this actually evoke from us? Fear? Inadequacy? Frustration for our current situation? Perhaps a fist at the sky that there aren't more hours in the day? While this might be true for some of us, others might view a chart like this and feel their current commitment renewed or maybe even deepened. Perhaps they've been on the cusp of putting in an extra 30 minutes focused work in the morning, and this is the thing that tips their commitment into the next level. Often, as a teacher, I get very ambitious students who don't just enjoy the violin, but have a multitude of activities. With several extracurricular activities on their weekly docket, they truly don't get in more than an hour a day, but they're still faring very well in their peer group. Some of this is linked to their efficiency in practice and also their raw talent. I like to think that my focused teaching and instruction also aids in those students' ability to play well on a limited schedule for practice. But will this allow them to really reach their full potential? Or will they eventually hit a brick wall and feel some frustration? Sadly, I think it is generally the latter. As violinists enter the virtuosic training, I think they have to get closer to two to three hours a day, or they don't really get the chance to develop their skill sets properly or grow their artistry on multiple styles of music. IQ and talent won't change that number of hours, and neither will a terrific teacher. We wish it would, but in the end, I don't think it does. So I like the chart that I posted the other day that boldly lists 1.5 to two hours as recommended and three to four hours as necessary for virtuosic development because it serves as a cue. It's a cue to parents and students that if they desire this level of performance, sacrifices in schedule will have to be made. And sometimes we need that cue to make strong decisions for our futures. Also, who's to say that everyone wants to pursue a virtuosic level of playing? I've taught many students who do not want to pursue that necessarily, but just want to enjoy their music and be lifelong learners at the highest level they can muster. They aren't approaching it as a career, and they don't feel that pressure of being ready for college auditions or conservatory pre-screens and applications... The problem for me as a teacher is when people say they might want that career in music and yet they aren't able to pare down their schedule to afford the hours of practice necessary. Our goals have to line up with reality. And no, putting those hours in doesn't guarantee a career in music. That might sound harsh, but honestly, this would be true for any difficult endeavor. As parents and as teachers, we should be attempting to give students a viable shot at it if this is what they truly desire, and that will involve reducing the schedule down so they can focus on their craft eventually. One of the things that kept coming up on the Instagram post was that people were concerned that there was no message in the chart about quality of practice. They were concerned that students would just add hours without a plan or without any thought to efficient work and targeted practice. Then, in that same vein of thought, there seemed to be concerns about repetitive motion injury or people taking their practice too far just to reach the hours listed. I have to admit, some of these concerns puzzled me at first, because for me, my practice is very streamlined and focused. To me, the chart was on focused, quality practice, not awful, mindless practice. But for some, they felt like it really should have been specified. I know I help my students streamline their practice in every session. Truly, there is no consistency at the virtuosic level without focused, efficient work. It's a make-or-break-you kind of thing, in my opinion. And to me, it went without saying that simply adding minutes to the clock won't get us anywhere specific or impressive. I feel it's a given that as we advance, we should also be honing our focus, learning to make practice plans, charting, strategizing, and basically working toward feeling joy through music while being efficient and mindful. But perhaps I feel this way because it's pretty much a way of life for me. And I teach it this way, too. I know not everyone has had the experiences I have or the teachers I was blessed to study with. We all have different backgrounds in our training and in our musical studies, and this really flavors how we work and also how we connect our outcomes with the quality of our work. Even our mindset or our teachers' mindsets can affect how we feel about our practice. Sometimes our culture or our family's priorities can have a huge impact, too, on how or how much we put in those precious minutes. So let's talk about quality, being mindful, and the importance of efficient work. Nobody in my profession wants anyone practicing mindlessly or without a plan. Trust me. We want students and parents mapping out practice plans, making deadlines on calendars, setting up mini home concerts, and creating building blocks of learning in their own individual work. While we might guide a student and parent along the way, the ultimate goal is for young musicians to be able to take initiative and meet their own goals independently. There will be bumps along the way, but the first steps are getting a student to set some practice goals in place with our guidance and to not be working haphazardly or just on the spots where they sound good. Many teachers I know will assign a specific practice list of things to do with exact instructions, even taking videos and lessons and sending them along. They are endeavoring to send you home with a plan already in place. But then, as practice starts for the week there will inevitably be times where some recalibrating needs to happen, and great students will take initiative happily and stay on track, even if it means an email or two with some questions. I liken this to the Garmin in the car saying recalculating when I miss an exit or take a different turn. I end most lessons with a sentence that sounds like this. Please email me if you have any questions about your work this week. I'm here to help, and I always email back. I mean these words. Quality work comes with a plan and good intentions. Quality work can also include exploration, but usually still with a goal in mind. For example, for violin, it is a good use of our time to try out a number of different ways to phrase something with various bow distributions and vibrato and bow speed, but eventually you need to develop one of those choices to know whether it's a keeper for you. If you stay in that exploration stage too long, you are just doing what I like to call vanity practice. I know that sounds awful, doesn't it? But I named it that way on purpose to steer people away from it. Vanity practice is you indulging and playing things different ways just to please yourself, While being versatile is admirable, making a choice and developing it to the highest level is, to me, far more courageous and the mark of an artist. There will always be someone who doesn't like how you play a certain piece, but for you to be true to your own artistry, you need to make decisions and then fully develop them so you can give what your ears are aligning with a fair chance to be heard. So often, we make decisions about timing and phrasing around technical concerns instead of following our ears. Often, when I am reviewing a concerto from my youth, I have to redo all of it and realize that more than half of the decisions I made were centered around shifts, staying in tune, or playing clean instead of music making. The end result of all of this rerouting is almost like a rebirth of a piece. It's very satisfying, and yes, it's also quality work. It can also be very time-consuming, but in the end, you're playing it in a way that is totally unique because it is coming from your ears, and that's what artistry is all about. Being mindful is also incredibly important in quality work. In this busy day and age, it is so easy to let our minds drift. With technology and apps and texts and multiple activities and homework, kids are really challenged to stay mindful of what they are currently doing and not get off track. I made a decision a long time ago that I was going to train my body to respond to the violin hitting my shoulder. To me, the weight of the violin as it hits my shoulder is my focus button. It puts my brain in a different, more focused and mindful state. If I find my mind wandering, I put the violin down. By doing so, I'm attempting to train myself to not associate the violin with mindless work. If I do want to improvise or just have fun playing the violin, maybe do some light chamber music with friends after dinner, for example, I do so with the intention of being free and following my ear. So it's still mindful because there's still intention there. The problem for many, I think, is that they set about practice to be mindful and focused, and then they allow their mind to wander instead of training it to stay on track. This requires discipline, but I promise it gets easier once you make a firm commitment. A really good time to try and train your body to only be mindful during practice would be on break, Because then you have a lot of time where you can make the decision. I'm not being mindful right now. I'm starting to think about something other than what I'm doing and put the instrument down. Then you can recalibrate, do whatever it is that needs to be done, and revisit your work later. We tend to have very busy schedules where everything is mapped out. So training your body to do something like this is not ideal when every hour is already mapped out in the day. Having said that I recommend it for everyone because for me, it really changed how focused and how efficient my practice could be. I'm also very mindful of my space and my environment to keep it uncluttered. And I'm careful to not have things lingering on my mind or issues unresolved when I head into practice. So there's the space around you, and then there's what's going on in your brain. If there are important emails waiting or family duties that need to be done, it's harder for me to maintain my focus. This is understandable. So I plan my day accordingly. With time set aside to complete those tasks, I can fully focus my energy on practice and have a greater chance of success for quality minutes. Sometimes if I don't have time to finish something that really needs to get done— just jotting down a plan for how I will accomplish it later in the day or setting aside a set time to do it later will settle my brain, too. For example, if I need to do some editing for a student, but the only practice time I have is really now, I might take five minutes to set aside or print the music needed to be edited, pull up a link or a recording I want to use to help me, clear my desktop to do it, and have the student's email up with a drafted intro message. So all I have to do is attach the document once it's done. All working musicians have a running to-do list, and most are at least partially self-employed. I used to tell my dad all the time that the scariest thing about being booked for solo concerti was that nobody really thought to check on me to see how I was progressing. It was all on me to make sure I was ready to play for the conductor at piano rehearsal or at the first orchestra rehearsal. I did, in fact, mostly feel on track, but my workday was spent alone, charting my own work, making mini deadlines, and keeping track of my goals. This is something I trained years to do, though, with instructors guiding me along the way. Now let's talk about efficiency. When it comes to being efficient, I think one of the hardest parts is assessing what it is that's in front of you. Often with students, I find they underestimate the work at hand. Truly, they might not know how long it will take to bring a larger work up to performance level. And if we don't give them an estimate, they will go off of their gut instinct sometimes, only giving large sections or pieces half of their due in practice. Maybe they think it'll be easier to put together than it actually will be, and their work reflects that. They may be spending more time on something that doesn't actually need it, or virtually skipping a section that seems almost sight readable to them, but in fact isn't. They think they're being thoughtful about where they put in their minutes, but their calculations are all off. These students will usually have a large reality check when they start running through their pieces, and they will have to do a lot of recalibrating in their practice to get back on track. Here's a short story on assessing difficulty and what is needed to illustrate my point. Once when I was teaching a workshop to prepare youth symphony auditions, I heard a young girl playing a Mozart excerpt. When I asked her to play that particular excerpt, she seemed almost relieved I picked that one because to her, there were harder ones in the mix. Then, she proceeded to truly struggle with it and looked almost puzzled with herself afterwards. Her face, to me, read like someone who thought that that bad outcome was a fluke. So I asked her if she could rate the difficulty of this excerpt for me using a 1 to 10 scale. She responded that that was what was confusing to her, actually, because she thought that it was a fairly easy excerpt, rating it at only a 4 I then asked her if maybe the problem then was in her assessment and that her practice of it was a reflection of that. How would she practice it if I were to convince her that it was a 9 out of 10 on the difficulty scale? She responded that she would definitely be practicing it more then and allotting more time in each practice session for it, certainly slower practice and using a metronome. I think her outcome would have been better, right? The point I'm making is that efficiency, and yes, quality in practice, sometimes needs to happen based on realistic assessments of difficulty. What are we looking at on the stand, and what will it take? And yes, I know that the teachers need to be clear about this too, but keep in mind all teachers I know will tell you how incredibly difficult it is to play Mozart well. Sometimes the children convince themselves otherwise and proceed on their own notions. And the parents do too. So if a teacher says something to you like, Just an FYI, this one is deceptively difficult. It might look simple, but will take your full attention. Please listen. We've been there and done that a million times, so we're really just trying to protect you. Another example I have of assessing difficulty is that most students and parents don't know how difficult a work really is until they try and play it with accompaniment or in full. Certainly, in first rehearsals with piano, many students encounter all of their hard work temporarily falling all around them. They thought they were at the top of the mountain already, but in fact, we have another hill left to climb because their body is now tasked with coordinating and responding to another part. And even I am consistently surprised when I try and run a full concerto, still to this day. I always start run-throughs two weeks prior to any concerto engagement. To me, it is a very necessary part of performance training. And my practice is generally very efficient and targeted, so I do make sure I'm ready to start those two weeks fully prepared. I have actually played these same concerti all quite a bit with orchestras, so there is also that history of bringing a piece up to performance level so I know how to structure that practice and get things to run clean. Having said all of that, as I start those run-throughs, I almost always tell my husband that I have a good feeling about it this time that it's going to run super smooth, that I have figured out some new things now, and that I'm looking forward to a smoother initial sale on the S.S. Mendelssohn or whatever it happens to be. He will then pour me a glass of wine because inevitably there are issues on the first run-through that will throw me off my perch. And actually, for the first week, there are usually multiple issues, never seemingly the same ones, night after night. I've grown to see this as my brain and body just kind of adjusting to the extra burden of playing it all at once. And this is especially for the larger concertos that last 45 or 50 minutes. Eventually, somewhere in week two, things start to straighten out, but not until my practice becomes more targeted based on the things happening in those run-throughs. You see, even I slightly underestimate the difficulty of the larger works each time, Not enough to put off the start of my run-throughs, but certainly with some inexplicably Pollyanna kind of hope on day one. Another part of being efficient is charting and planning. I promise you with charting over here, Ava's progress would be far less and my own concerts would probably never happen. At my age, I'm also having trouble just retaining each day's work so that I know how to approach the next And with now multiple students to track and train, I need those charts and notes. We have a calendar for every month that is in the front flap of Ava's notebook. We look at it every day. Are we on track? What's coming up? When do we start run-throughs? When are we rehearsing with piano soon? All of this fuels our work and how thoughtful we are. This leads us to quality practice. We also use spaced repetition a ton over here, so charting is crucial. One of the main principles of spaced repetition is that you practice something deeply and then you wait until it's almost out of your memory and then flooded again. To me, it is like surging information when your tank reads nearly empty. Well, depending on the spot and the piece at hand, that space might be longer or shorter between practices. For new things, it will definitely be shorter. Ever learned a new piece or excerpt and then got hit with the flu, only to return to it later and have no physical memory of it whatsoever? I have. It's the weirdest feeling ever to see your own markings on the page and be begging your hand to remember them. Sometimes if you keep at it calmly, things will start popping back. But other times, you might have missed your window. Well, with spaced repetition, you want to get close to that point, but not quite, and then surge it all back again. This makes for more progress and deeper learning. It also allows you to practice more pieces at once because you aren't doing mindless repetitions that won't serve you. Many of us will do more repetitions than is actually useful in a sitting. We do this out of anxiety or fear of failure, I think. When truly, if you read the scientific research, once you're able to do something correctly a few times relaxed, you can put it down and space out the next practice accordingly. This is where you could pick up another piece, ideally from a different period to tickle your ear in a new direction. I think of ears like cathedrals, beautiful and structured with tall ceilings and infinite light. The more periods of music you study beautifully at once, the bigger your cathedral is. So when I looked at that chart that I posted, I saw only focused minutes, quality work. Those are the ones that I was counting because those are the only kind I believe in because I know that even then, it's still difficult to reach our goals. The last thing I want to bring up today is something that I say a lot on Instagram, But still, it seemed tested the other day in some of the responses. I count everything in my practice tally. And I ask all my students to do the same. So if you are, for example, someone who plays an instrument where playing more than a few hours a day is not physically advisable, hello wind players and brass players or singers, this applies to you for sure. I truly believe that people focus too much on practice just being the time they physically play their instrument. One of the things I really want to get across in this podcast is that there are many other ways to practice without your instrument. There is mental practice, there's score study, there is listening to recordings and watching performance videos you admire, there's the act of visualization. There's listening to your own recordings and writing constructive things for you to practice to take things to the next level. There are supplemental art projects and story writing and character building to help build your artistry. There should be the study of each composer and when they wrote the piece, what was happening during that time period and what might have inspired them to write it, both in their life personally and also in the world around them. All of these count as practice, and many of them are very time-consuming in an incredibly joyful way for students. The fact is, when we do any of these things, our playing shows more conviction, confidence, and purpose. I believe it allows students to take more ownership of their work as a whole and produces a higher-level musician. It strengthens their musical message and it takes students beyond just the notes to full expression. Many of the things that I just listed can be done almost anywhere. They're portable. So I know that when people talk about practice and hours, they are generally talking about the time that you have your instrument and are playing it. But I think that that's a mistake. Ask yourself how much your playing would improve if you committed to setting aside a chunk of time for any of the things that I just listed. We do it every day, and I promise it makes all the difference. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast on practice. I know it is a hot topic for some of you out there and that finding the right balance is tricky. I hope that by doing this episode, it opens up many dialogues in your houses and studios so that we can come to a greater understanding of the work, and yes, the type of work, necessary to support the next generation of artists that hit stage. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com. And let's connect.